Well, we are starting our last text for Mark tonight. Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. Um, I'm going to start by reading in, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's on the screen. You can turn there if you want to as well. These are important verses. Um, We'll talk about 1 Corinthians 15 and its kind of historic significance to the gospel and its centrality to the message of the gospel a little bit later. But let me read these verses. This is Paul. Okay, He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who also those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished and if in Christ we have hope in this life only he says we are of all people most to be pitied so the resurrection seems to be a big deal to paul like a really big deal and um, we're going to look at eight verses tonight just eight verses um, mark 16 1 through 8 And in those eight verses are three, I think, of the most powerful words that I know. Three of the biggest words, I think, I believe, in Scripture are in in this text that we're studying tonight, in in Mark 16. And it's the words, He has risen. So, if these words are true, then then it, it, it changes everything for us. And if these words are not true, then it changes everything for us. So everything, in my opinion, hinges upon whether or not this is actually true, that Jesus did rise from the dead. So how many of you grew up in a, in a Christian home? Raise your hand here in a second. If you grew up in a Christian home that taught you about that, that the resurrection of Jesus was true. How many of you grew up in a Christian home that taught you these things? Okay, The, the far majority in here. In my experience, there are three types of people, three types of professing, believing adults who are raised in a raised in a Christian home, believing the resurrection to be true. The first group is those who wonder about the resurrection, um, but yet never really looked into it and just kind of accept it. Okay. The other, another group is those who struggle with whether or not the resurrection is true but who have, who have never really looked into it and just kind of hope that it's true. Then the third group is those who have studied the validity of the resurrection, come to believe it's a historical fact, and therefore accept it. Okay? So if you were to guess, of the three types of people, which are the most confident in their faith, which are the most, most likely to talk about their faith and most emboldened in their faith, and it's, and it's those who have really looked into this. And those who have said, yeah, I, this is a big deal. Like, if this hasn't happened, it kind of changes everything about what I'm doing and about my life. And so I don't say that to, to, for some of you to go, oh, man, I haven't, I haven't looked in, I haven't researched this and to, to make you feel guilty at all. That's okay, because we're going we're gonna to talk about it tonight, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something at the end that, I think will be really helpful to, to, to understand proof behind the resurrection, to give you some basis and some, some understanding for why you believe in this. Um, but, I, but at first, I kind of want to leave you hanging. I want to leave the tension because I believe um, it's that important. So, we're going to start in Mark 16. Uh, let me get there. We, last week, we ended at the, at the end, of fifth, end of 15. Jesus has been brutally executed by one of the most humiliating 
forms of execution of the day. Um, he has he has uh, he's died. They took him off the cross, buried him in a tomb, in a rich man's tomb, and the women it says that they knew where he was buried. They they saw where he was laid. So that was that was Friday, and they they buried him before the Sabbath. And then you have, you know, the day starts for the, for the Jew, the day starts when the sun goes down. So you have, you have the sun going down, the Sabbath beginning, and then all of Saturday until, until sun goes down again. And, and in between, Mark 16 and Mark 15 is the Sabbath day. So, so I want you to think about the disciples on that Sabbath day. They can't go fishing to keep busy, to keep, keep their minds off of what just happened. They can't work. They can't, you know, stay busy. You know what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath is rest and remember. So think about their, their, their past three years and the things that they've been following Jesus doing and hearing and seeing Him do. And then they just witnessed and experienced what just took place last week when we talked about the brutal death and, and, and burial of Jesus. And... And now they just get to sit around all day and think about it. Imagine the thoughts that are going through their head. Was he really not who we believed he was? You know, um, why did he have to die? Could, could I have, in my overzealousness to get Rome out of power and to overcome them, could I have seen something more in him than was really true? Could I have projected a Messiah complex onto Jesus that really wasn't true. I mean, imagine the thoughts that were going through their head on that Sabbath morning, or that Sabbath day. Did I just waste three years of my life? So, verse 1 in chapter 16 starts, and Abby, you want to read for us? Um, Read 1 through 3. Okay, so they Sabbath has passed. They get up early in the morning. They go and, and get the spices they need. They make their way to the tomb. It's early in the morning. Sunrise is happening. Um, it's the first day of the week, and um, for for centuries now, now that particular day has become sacred because of this. In fact, in Acts 20, verse 7, it tells us, um, I'm not sure how many years or decades that is, um, into the life of the church, but by then, it was the first day of the week is when they were gathering to break bread together, to celebrate and to remember. What used to be the Sabbath is now moved to the first day of the week, which would be the day after the Sabbath, which would be what day? Sunday. So, if you've ever wondered, why, why do we have church on Sunday and not on the Sabbath? Well, it kind of dates back to dates back to then. Traditionally, like I said, the Sabbath was, was, was that day of remembering, and, and, and so they get up early in the morning the next day. They're, 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 you know, if the disciples are wondering and questioning whether or not what they saw was true, whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah, the women at least are determined to care for Him through His death. And so they're going, they're going to, uh, you know, they've already embalmed him for burial, but now they're going to go and continue to um, cover him in spices and, and honor him in this way. And notice the thing that they're worried about. Like they're on their way to the tomb and they're thinking, how in the world are we going to move that rock? I, I don't know, I don't think Mark is just telling the story just to, just to give you an idea of the kind of th- conversation they're having on the way to the tomb. I think because writers didn't write that, that way. We write that way now. We, we talk about all kinds of, give, give all kinds of details. But writers back then were recording conversations for a purpose. I, I believe Mark is recording that, citing that conversation that they have to prove the fact that this rock was big, like, like too big. Like it would, it would ta- it's going to take a miracle for them to figure out how to move that thing by themselves. They're going to need to get some help. Like something's going to have to happen. And so he, I, I believe he's highlighting that for that reason. Read 4 through 7.
Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Okay. So, they they get to the tomb, and, and, and I don't believe Mark is solely wanting to talk about how big the rock is. I believe he's, he's ultimately wanting to point to the fact that they were not expecting, they were not expecting them to find an empty tomb, or them to find a rock moved, let alone, they, they didn't know how they were going to move it, but then again, they surely weren't expecting it to be moved on their own. So, so that gives you an idea, even though, we, again, we look back, hindsight 2020, we live thousands of years after the cross, and, and, and we know this story, we know what, they should, what they're going there to find, but, but that gives you an idea. They're, go, they're not going there expecting to find Jesus risen. That's, that is not on their minds at all. And they go in and they see, um, see this person standing, this, this angelic-like being. So think about, think about the reason they were going to anoint the body of Jesus, and think about the, the true anointing that Jesus um, that this this person, this man, this being, begins to tell them about, like he's he's not here, he's risen. Um, one commentator uh, compares and contrasts the beginning of Mark with the end of Mark. In the beginning of Mark, when he when he talks about John the Baptist coming to prepare the way, he 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 says this commentator is saying how in in Mark chapter one there was a God's messenger was coming to prepare the way. Um, at the end, God's messenger is coming to, to tell you, to tell them that Jesus has prepared the way. Like, he's gone ahead. Both, um, it's interesting, both actually refer to their clothes, um, but both bring a different message, obviously. One being, this one being, a divine truth that, that no person could have predicted and could have seen, and, and yet God sent this angelic being to, uh, to present it. Um, the word, uh, he is going before you, actually is a verb, and I think it's pronounced proago, but it, it's, it's not simply, the word isn't, doesn't have this idea of like, oh, by the way, he's just ahead of you a little bit. He's, in time, he's before you. The word is often used um, referring to commanders who are leading their people ahead of them, who are... Um, leading troops forward, or leading an advancement. So this is not a passive word. Jesus is not just, oh, Jesus is just a few steps ahead of you. He'll beat you. He'll meet you in Galilee. No, He's leading the way. This is, a, this is a, uh, not a, again, not a passive idea. And see, for the, the disciples, Galilee is the area where they are first, they're called to discipleship, called to follow Jesus. It's where they witnessed the power and the healing and the miracles of Jesus. This is the very place where they are, they, they're, um, I guess, their feet got wet in terms of what it means to live in the kingdom. And this is the very place where Jesus is going to come back um, and, and regroup in order for this next phase, in order to bring redemption and restoration to the, earth, to, to the world. Like, so th- this is the place where Jesus is, is meeting with him. Now, um, I want to stop and I want to talk about those three words. He has risen. Um, so if you remember a couple weeks ago, I said that in talking about when, when Jesus is in the garden and he's suffering, I talked about how w- when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the, ki- the way of the kingdom, the way of God, um, the, the victory comes through suffering. That life comes through death, right? So I emphasize the suffering. I emphasize the, the, the stuff that we have to go through. Um, but, but we can't ignore the victory and the life. And so that's, th- this resurrection is big. This resurrection is big, not just because it proves that, it proves that Jesus is who He says He is. Okay? There's so much more to that. And uh, at, at the end of this, I want to read 
read something to kind of help help us see a, a, a bigger picture of what the res, res, resurrection is all about. But I want to give you three reasons why you can trust in the, res, in the resurrection. Okay, and and there are there are a lot more than this. But as I was studying this past week, um, and have studied before, these three things seem to jump out as as really significant, really significant evidences of why we can trust the resurrection. Okay, and then at the end, I'm going to give you a sheet here. You may need to remind me. I'm going to give you this sheet. It's actually three pages, and it has the minimal facts argument. These are 12, 12 facts that um, even skeptics agree on that happened. On the back of it, actually the bottom and the back, is a seven-step argument for the, for the resurrection. It's written really, really well by a guy named Andrew Kirshner. Um, presented really well um, using logic, using argumentation that you would find in any sort of class that you would take today. It's written really well. And then also five attempts to discount the resurrection and, and problems with, with those reasons, problems with those attempts. So uh, you're going to have some really practical, um, evidential type things that you, can, that you can take with you. But I, I want to pick three out of, of these things and talk about. So first one is this. First one is this. The resurrection would not have been something that people in those days accepted. So I don't know about you, um, but in the arrogance of being in the 21st century, I think we sometimes think we've evolved to, we just keep getting smarter and smarter. And so that means years and years ago, people were, were dumb and they just kind of accepted anything and everything that came across. So surely, you know, back in, in those days in a third world country, someone mentions that Jesus rose from the dead, and everybody's like, oh yeah, sure, I believe that. Um, that's not how it happened. That's not how it was. Um, some, some Jews, you actually see this in the Bible, some Jews believed in a resurrection, but they believed in it in the final days, like at judgment day. There was one resurrection, it'll happen when we're all resurrected. And that's when they when the Pharisees talk about believing in a resurrection. That's the resurrection they talk of. They, they don't believe in an individual one that's going to happen and that they're going to get to see witness of and, and then continue on. No, they believed in one. And so, even even the Jews that accepted this idea of resurrection did not understand the Christian understanding of resurrection. So the other Jews, which would be the Sadducees, completely did not accept resurrection. In fact. Paul would often use this for his advantage. He would, he would get into a synagogue, and, and then people would start shouting. Mobs would start getting closer and closer because he got beat up a lot everywhere he went. And so he would just say, um, resurrection. And then he would kind of slip out, and then just big fight would happen between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over resurrection. He would just kind of slip out the back. Um, and so it, it, was a, it was a heated topic. Um, plenty of people did not believe in it. And then you have the Greeks who believed more in a dualistic understanding, and so they, they believed all, all, all flesh was, was evil and, and bad, and, and spirit was good. So the idea that a body would die and then come back to life was, was not a, a widely accepted idea at all. So all that to say, to me, this, 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 the, the Christian idea of resurrection was such a new and radical idea, that it was not something that, well, how could we get a bunch of people to believe in this movement? Um, okay, Jesus, your, your sermons, they're just not cutting it. So how, what can we do? What kind of marketing technique? I know people are dumb and they'll just accept anything. Let's, let's make up this idea that they, they rose from the dead. It, it, when you understand first century thought and the ideas behind it, this would have been a totally new and radical idea. The, the, the author, N.T. Wright, and I'm going to quote from him a little bit later, he has a book called Surprised by Hope. So if you're wanting a, um, actually, it, the scholarly version of this book, I can't remember what it's, what it's called, something to do with resurrection. It's like 700 pages. And then like if you want to read that for dummies, like me, 
then you get surprised by hope, and it's only like three or four hundred pages. Um, but it's it's written from this perspective. So if you really want a a really good explanation, probably the the best scholarly work in our time on the resurrection would be N.T. Wright's "Surprised by Hope" and his other book. Um, but it's a, it's an in-depth study of the first century understanding everything from the first century understanding of resurrection to what is heaven about? What's the point of resurrection? What do we have to look forward to? Really good book. So that's my first. Second one is this. That the empty tomb and post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are central to proving this is a historical fact. So, without, without sounding too, whatever, minimalist or scientific, if, if the crux of Christianity, okay, is centered on this idea of Jesus rising from the dead. Then, then what is it that, what is needed in order to prove that? And I believe it's these two things: that there needs to be proof that there is there was an empty tomb, and there needs to be proof that Jesus that that there were people who witnessed his appearances after he was dead, like post-resurrection appearances okay so this is uh, if if one is true and one is not true then then there's not enough sufficient evidence to prove the resurrection this is what Andrew Kirshner says in, in one of these one of these statements he says an empty tomb by itself is a puzzle or a tragedy okay and sightings of an apparently alive Jesus by themselves would have been classified as visions and hallucinations. But, if both are true, this, this now brings significant evidence, significant um, yeah, evidence for, for the, 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 prob, the high probability of a resurrection. Okay? And he talks about the reason... That all of the, the the best we can get is high highly probable. That's the best we can get because we weren't there. To prove any historical fact, the best you can get is highly probable. And so he says, um, you, you take these two things, you can prove these two things, then you're you're in high probability, and that's as that's as close as we can possibly get. So here's here's the thing. The, there's biblical evidence for it. Obviously, we just read through that. Um, we'll look at a text here in a little bit. Another one, uh, the Gospels present this as the case. So there's biblical evidence for it. There's circumstantial evidence for it. Um, and to name a few, there's several in these papers that I'm going to give you. But to name a few of the ones that I think stick out, the Apostles' transformation. Okay, These guys go from running for their life, okay, fleeing, hiding, denying Jesus in a crowd, to... Leading a movement that like took over the Middle East. So the, the Apostles' Transformation. Um, where am I at? Ah, their martyrdom. Most of them were martyred for their faith. So the the, the fact that they would do this is something shows that they truly believed that this was the case. I think that's circumstantial evidence. Um, also, the birth of the church would be another one. And there's, there's his, historical evidence for that as well. And then extra-biblical evidence. Extra-biblical would be outside the Bible. And I'll, I'll give you one. A guy named Josephus, who's a first-century historian, um, trusted one as well. But he says this. Uh, he says, When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared, <clears throat> for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and the thousand other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Um, Josephus was born around 37 and wrote during the late, you know, first century. I'm not sure exactly when he died, but he would have been writing during the time of the church. And um, and he wasn't a wasn't a Christian, 
but he was recording things. And so there, there are others. Um, there's a couple others I saw, and not in this, but in other research that I was doing. So th there are, anyway, th this is a big deal. And if you're going to be looking into this, these two things would be things that you, you would need to kind of look into and, and prove. And then third is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So if you have your Bible, turn, turn there, keep your finger in Mark, but I would like you, I would like you to see this. N.T. Wright points this out. Um, other, other authors like Tim Keller in his book Reason for God, which is, which is another phenomenal book that I would recommend um, in, terms of, in terms of evidences for your faith. Reason for God is probably the best book that I can recommend to you, that we could recommend to you. 1 Corinthians 15 is right there. Okay. So I, ha I have it on screen, but I want you to turn there anyway. It says, now, so to give you a little, little background, nobody doubts that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody doubts it. It would have been written around 50, the early 50, uh, 50s, so 53 to 55-ish, I believe, is what's projected. But, so nobody doubts that he was written. Nobody doubts really the time in which it was written. Even, even skeptical scholars that don't believe in Jesus, um, just because of the evidences, they don't doubt this. They don't doubt this was written, and, and this is his testimony. Okay? You're going to see in here the very first presentation of the Gospel. In, in, in chronology. So this would have been about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. 20 years later, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you, delivered you to you as of first importance what I also received. Okay, here it is. This is the gospel presentation. It's written kind of in this form that helps you see this is something they they told each other. This is something that was easily memorized and passed on. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. Um, that he that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, i.e., some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, born he also appeared to me. He appeared also to me. So, here's, here's, what's, here's what's said. The, the gospel presentation that, that Paul received and that also Paul passed on to the church in Corinth was that Christ died for their sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that all these people witnessed it. Some 500 people witnessed it, and, and he's saying hundreds of them are still alive that you can go out. This is 20 years ago, and so they're still alive. They witnessed Jesus' appearances. That's a pretty big deal. Um, and, and one that I think is, is, is worth, worth noting and worth kind of being aware of. So, I had to, I had to read N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope book for a class um, in seminary. And, and so this is a, like a paragraph summary. This is my summary of his book. Okay, and I and I want to read it because I think it it helps us see how big of a deal this resurrection is. Not just because it helps helps us prove this proves that what Jesus did on the cross is is true and accurate. The resurrection proves the resurrection is the power of the cross. Essentially, it's the power of of what of what Christ did on the cross. His death for us is secured because of his resurrection. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And so there's really nothing else. Nothing that we Nothing that we have to be um, afraid of. Nothing that can hold us from, from eternity with God because sin and death have been, been taken care of. Um, 
And so other than, other than that, which was huge, it also, it also gives us an idea of the kind of life that, that God wants for us. And so listen to this. It says, Wright goes, goes after the typical Western Christian view of the gospel being fire insurance. I've actually heard a preacher um, say that from the pulpit. Um, the, the gospel is fire insurance. It saves you from hell. So fire insurance, that's, that's what I meant. Um, saving us from hell so that, so that we can go to heaven where it's perfect. In other words, where it's all about us. Um, so typically, you know, the gospel is presented in that way and, and oftentimes it's present, presented that way and heaven's even presented that way. Oh, heaven's going to be so great. What, what's your favorite thing? Oh, it's going to be better. You know? And, and so N.T. Wright goes kind of goes after these, these views of the, res, of the gospel, but also even of heaven. And how a lot of times our view of heaven is so shaped by what we see on TV, streets of gold, running around on clouds, those kinds of things. Okay? Uh, his point is the gospel announces that, that what God did for Jesus at Easter, He will do not only for all those who are in Christ, but also for the entire cosmos. The redemption that Jesus paid for, uh, that Jesus paid for with his death was not simply making creation a bit better. It is in remaking of creation. This resurrection life that Jesus died for is that one day when all forces of rebellion have been defeated and the creation responds freely and gladly to the love of its creator, God will fill it with himself. It's not an escape from the dark world to a blissful utopia in the sky. It's a powerful, powerful rebirth of a new heaven and earth out of the old. Thus, the resurrection life, or the, as he talks about, the life after life after death, is a, new, is a life of newness in all things, practical, physical, spiritual, emotional, and experiential, as Jesus on Easter is the first prototype of this kind of life. So, resurrection is kind of a big deal. All right, back to Mark 16. And we're going to read the last verse of the book. Read verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Okay. Any questions? None? Nope. Okay, good. We're done. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, what's going through your head? What? What's that? Yeah, yeah. You got what? You got. Oh. <laughs> It's one of those where you can kind of change the ending, you get into it, and you're like, nah, I don't want that. What else could we do? No. Actually, that may not be far from the truth. So, um, why are we stopping here? Why are we stopping at verse 8? Why aren't we studying 9 through 20? 20? Um, so, why would, why would Mark, if, okay... This is what I'm presenting, that this is the last verse that Mark wrote. Why would, he, why would he end this way? And why aren't we, why don't we trust the rest of it? Or should we? And that is a good question that, that Drew is going to answer for us. So we're going to take a break, and then he'll come up. Okay, hey, just to clarify real quick, because apparently there's a little bit of confusion, just to clarify, this is our last official study of the year, so next week after the, like, next week the cookout is our last get-together, so we're not meeting here afterwards or anything like that, so, so this is it, so soak it all in, um, but yeah, next week next week is the cookout. Hopefully you guys can be there and it'll be it'll be a lot of fun and one last chance to hang out with you. And then we'll have this we'll have this building open all week during finals week for you to come up and study in. So 
you come up and do that, and then generally they study till 10 and then have some sort of movie night or something like that. So every, 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 every day during finals week, you can come use this place. And in the summer, oh, yeah. glad you said that. And in the summer, for those of you who are still around, we are actually doing a Wednesday night study. Um, we'll, be, we'll be going through the book of Colossians together this summer. So, yeah, so for those of you guys who are here, it won't start, it won't start immediately after. It'll start a few weeks after. We'll, we'll tweet it out or whatever. So, let me go ahead, just for, just for fun's sake, let me go ahead and read um, these last... This last section here, that's, that's in most of you guys' Bibles, should be probably in all of it. Um, starting in verse 9, where we left off. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, um, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this is the long ending that Andrew mentioned, and there is a short ending, um, which is, uh, but they reported briefly to Peter, they being the women, and those with him, all that they had been told, and after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And we know that that's not true because that sounds more like Anthony than Mark. Um, And so... So, but here's, here's kind of the question. You also, probably almost all of you, have a little note between verse 8 and verse 9. Um, whoever has that, read that for me. 9 through 20 are bracketed in the NU text as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. All right, so that's the long version. Um, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, okay, these two um, manuscripts that are missing. Yours might just say they are missing in the oldest manuscripts that we have, basically. All right, so that's the bottom line. That is Sinaiticus and Vaticanus are the two oldest manuscripts that we have. Um, So what does that mean? What that means is that more than likely... Um, I would say up to 99%, 99.9, this, is not, this was not originally in the gospel when it was written, i.e. it was not written by Mark, meaning it is not scripture, um, that this is not actually intended to be in your Bible. Um, and so we, we believe that for a couple different reasons. The, the most important is what we call kind of the external evidence, and that is that when we go look back at our manuscripts, the ones that are earliest, which means they would be the most reliable because they're closest to the original source, the ones that are earliest do not have them in there. Um, and so for that reason alone, the fact that they don't show up for the first couple hundred years or whatever for, for a while, that reason alone is good reason for us to go, yeah, this probably doesn't fit in there. But there's also internal evidence, and that is that in the Greek, the, the form and the, the vocabulary of this text does not match the way Mark writes during his, during his book. And there's some other kind of weird things. It ends with these, um, the, the subject and the verbs being kind of mask, or feminine because it's talking about the women in verse 8. And then in verse 9, the verb switches to masculine, talking about Jesus, almost kind of this weird shift. Um, also, when it talks about Mary Magdalene, it introduces her as though you've never heard of her before. Mary Magdalene, that's this lady who had these demons cast out of her. But what's weird is Mark actually talks about her like three times in the previous chapter 
in, in 16 and 15. And so there's no need to introduce her for the first time. If, if actually it's Mark writing this, he'd say, I already told you about her. Um, and so there's a, there's a few different things in there that cause us to go, yeah, this doesn't seem to be it. Also, actually, as you read it, what it appears to be is a hodgepodge of the endings of all the other Gospels. Um, and so there's the appearance to Mary Magdalene, that's the end of John. There's the appearance to the two on the road, that's the end of Luke. Um, there's the great commission at the end, the sending out, that's the end of Matthew. And so he's kind of hodgepodging all these things together. For that reason, most of the end of Mark 16 is true, because it's telling you things that, that are already recorded in the other Gospels, most of it, except for the whole handling snakes and drinking poison thing. Um, and there are actually entire churches that have built up around that verse. Um, snake handling churches built up around this verse that was not in Mark's Gospel. Um, but, but even that, that snake handling one, people actually probably point to Acts 26 where Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake and it doesn't kill him. And so they're, they're kind of piecing, whoever this is, pieces all of this together, but we don't believe that this was actually Mark writing it. How many of you, if you're honest, does that freak you out just a little bit? That this is not, what's in my Bible is not supposed to be in my Bible? Um, how do I know that that's not true of all the other things too? Um, and how do I, you know... This, this honestly, and, and, and I mean this when I say this, this ought to actually strengthen your confidence in the Word of God rather than weaken it. Strengthen your confidence in what you have before you rather than weaken it. The reason that we are able to tell that this shouldn't be in here is because the New Testament has so many manuscripts, ancient manuscripts from it, um, that date back to so early that we're able to look at it and know because we've, we've got 25,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament that we can look at and we can get back really, really early in history to look back and see what was accurate and then we can look at which ones are different and changes. So as we kind of look at, as we compare the 25,000 different ones, we can look at them and go, yeah, this one seems funky, that shouldn't be in there. Um, that kind of stuff. We don't have that with any other ancient manuscript. The, those things, as they're given to us, we just have to trust it because there's not other manuscripts of them to compare them to. And they're not very um, old, most of them. So Ryan talked about this at our Q&A night, Ryan Vincent. Um, the, the second most reliable ancient document that we have, anybody know what it is? Homer's Iliad, okay, is the second most reliable ancient document that we have in, because it has a whole lot of manuscripts and because it's dated to, you know, not, our earliest copy of it is not that much later than when it was actually written. So the Iliad has, as I said, the New Testament has 25,000 different copies. Iliad has 643. That's second best. Um, and it is dated to... The New Testament, we have manuscripts as old as like maybe 70-ish years after it was written, after the Gospels were written, which is really pretty awesome. Homer's Iliad, second best, 500 years, okay, is, is the date. So we have no idea how much it may have changed in those 500 years from when Homer actually wrote it to our closest document to it. Um, another one that we use, historians use for their history of the Roman Empire um, uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, talking about the conquering of Gaul. Anybody know how many copies we have of that? How many manuscripts? Ten. We have ten that we use that will be taught in your history class as fact because I mean, we got ten documents. And the most recent, the, the oldest one we have dates 1,000 years after Julius Caesar wrote it. And yet we trust it and we treat it as fact, and then people want to call into question the New Testament that we got documents as old as 70 years right after, within the generation, uh, maybe even 50 years with the John Ryland's papyrus dating to probably 125 A.D., something like 35, 40 years perhaps after John wrote his gospel. Um, so that far back in 25,000 different documents to compare, and for that reason, New Testament scholars are able to look at the New Testament and know exactly when something shouldn't be there, like the end of Mark, and when something should. And so if it's in your Bible without a comment, it's because they know that it's supposed to be there. We have a certainty of it. There's actually only two sections. There's some verses every now and then that we go, yeah, that actually shouldn't be in there. Um, the ending of Matthew's Lord's Prayer, 
for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Again, once again, sounds more like Anthony than Matthew. <laughs> and so that one, yeah, that's, and it's not in the earliest manuscripts. There's, so most of them are small. There's only two big chunks of scripture like this that we have, and I'll tell you the other one later. I'm not going to tell you it now because you'd all be sitting there flipping it going, <gasps> so I'll tell you about that in just a bit, and I want you to, want you to listen to the rest of this. So um, here's the question. If verses 9 through 20 weren't originally in there, that leaves us with this really strange ending, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. Kind of a downer, Right? Um, no resurrection appearance as in the other Gospels, no great commission, just people running away freaked out. That's how Mark ends his Gospel. And so that leaves us with a couple different ads. By the way, you can see why someone would want to add to it, right? Why some scribe would go, I, Mark didn't do a very good job here, right? Like, we gotta, we got to spice this up a little bit, you know what I mean? And and so they would just take what they saw in the other Gospels and just kind of connect that on there because you could see how they would think that doesn't fit, that doesn't work. Um, so here are options. Why does Mark end that way? Why does it seem so abrupt and so inappropriate, the ending, for what we want? Three different options. One is um, that Mark meant to finish, um, that he was in the middle of writing but did not get a chance to because he was either imprisoned or he was martyred, or his main source, which was Peter, was in prison, or martyred, or for whatever reason, he just did not get a chance to write what he wanted to write. Um, option two is that Mark did write it, and then that, that actually, the end of that got lost, that, that we, somewhere over time, lost that section of Scripture. And so it was there somewhere, but we don't have it anymore. Um, and there are a number of scholars who believe that, a number of scholars who believe both of those things. Um, I actually leaned towards those. I think I leaned more towards the um, lost it, um, but also the, that he got in prison really does. There's, there's some plausibility to that, and, and that makes sense. And so those are what I leaned towards. Number three is that Mark intentionally ended it this way, that he wanted to leave it this way. And, and though I used to lean towards one and two because I would read it and just go, there's no way that this is what Mark wanted to happen. There's no way that this is how he intended it. I actually now lean more towards option three, that Mark planned it this way and intended it this way. And part of that has to do with a little bit of my own view of God's sovereignty in protecting his word. And, and it just, it seems to me that if God had inspired Mark to write more in this gospel and Mark wrote it, that God would have seen to it to make sure that it got into the church's hands and got passed down. Um, now, I'm not saying it has to be that way because of what I believe about God. He, he, he may have let it. He may have said, oh, you got Matthew, Luke, and John. You're good. Um, but, but to me, it just seems like that's the way it would work. But another reason, honestly, is because of, because of our study through the book of Mark this year. And as we've walked through the book of Mark, it has bolstered my opinion that Mark actually intended it this way. Um, here's what I mean by this. Um, one of the things that really stuck out to me in this, and I've known this for a little bit about Jesus and his parables, but the way Mark compares to it, um, the teaching style of Jesus. Um, when we got into the parables in Mark 4, and particularly in Jesus' explanation of why he teaches the parables, go there real quick. Mark 4, verse 10. So he teaches the parables and they come to him and they're asking him what these things mean and why he teaches this way. And contrary to what many of us were told growing up, Jesus uses stories because stories are easier to understand. Jesus uses stories to help connect with people and help them you know, really stick to and follow the story. Jesus actually says the opposite of that as to why he says parables and stories. Mark 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive." And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So here Jesus says, the reason I tell in parables is to make it harder for people to understand it. Which seems crazy. 
and seems like very, but that doesn't sound right. But that's what Jesus says he does. And then he actually tells another little mini parable that I believe now is actually a parable about his parables. It's kind of like an inception kind of thing. Um, and, and so he's giving a parable explaining about how parables work. And it's this one called a lamp under a basket in the heading there, verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. That is, with the perceptivity you use, with the amount of seeking and understanding you get, more will come to you, more understanding will come to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So, and the first thing he says, I say it so it'll be really hard. That's why I tell it this way. And then the second section he says, I hide it from it so that people can see it. Which sounds weird too, right? It's hidden so that it can be seen. It's put in the dark so it can come to the light. Um, sounds strange a little bit. Um, but, but what Jesus is getting at here, I believe, is that he does not put, we said this earlier in the semester, Jesus doesn't put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that anybody can just get up and grab them. He puts them on the top shelf so that you have to reach on your tippy toes. Still within reach, but you gotta, you got to stretch for it. Or to maybe flip that, he does not put it on the surface of the water so that you can just scoop down and grab it. He puts it down at the bottom of the pool so that you have to dive all in if you want to know it. If you want to get it, you're going to have to go all in to that. Um, you're going to have to go all the way through. But in diving in, you get so much more. You, you get soaked in the process rather than just getting your hands a little bit wet as you jump into those things. And I think that there's something to that. Um, you can see this even in the way Jesus does his miracles in the book of Mark. He heals a dude and then says, shut up about it, don't tell anybody, right? Um, or he goes and he raises this girl back from the dead, but he doesn't even take most of his disciples. He only takes the inner three, Peter, James, and John, and then the parents, and he, and he raises her back to life and he tells them, don't tell anybody about this. And time and time again, he keeps it a secret. He keeps things low. It's like Jesus doesn't trust kind of a surface level telling of what's going on. Just something that kind of gets spoken out. He wants people to keep quiet and he wants people to want to know the truth. He wants people to come up to him after he tells his parables and say, you got to explain that to me. I want to know. i got to know. Tell me about that. That's what he wants from people. And as I started reading that text right there, that, that, math, or that parable text in 4, and then I started seeing the rest of Mark's gospel and realizing that I think Mark takes his cue for teaching from Jesus. That Mark actually writes his gospel in the same way that Jesus teaches his parables. Not putting things on the bottom shelf where it just is clear and easy and obvious right away, but that you have to look through it. One of the first times when this really stuck out to me is when Jesus walks on the water in chapter 6. And my mind was blown as I got to study through this and see some of these things, where there's this really weird statement that the disciples are out in the boat and the storm's going crazy and they're getting freaked out. Jesus had stayed behind. And then Jesus starts walking across the water and Mark says, and he intended to pass, pass by them. Um, but then they saw him and they, you know, they got terrified or whatever, so he intended to pass by them. And that always confused me that Jesus saw his disciples struggling out on the boat and he's trying to sneak by so, they don't, so these losers aren't going to annoy him and get his attention, right? And then it says, but they saw him and they got terrified. And he's like, ah, crap, I've got to come over and help you people, right? That's like always, I was like, I don't get that. Why does he say that Jesus was trying to pass them by? And then as I studied, get to realize that that word actually, parekomai in the Greek, that word is used in the Septuagint, which is what? The Greek, the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament that has been translated into Greek, okay? That word is used for theophanies in the Old Testament. So when it says in Exodus 33 that God stuck Moses in the cleft of the rock and then he passed him by when Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, he perechomied him. 
And when it says that um, in Exit or First Kings 19, I believe, I think I wrote it down, in First Kings 19, when Elijah is seeking the Lord and he's trying to find him, and then it says that God says, I'm going to pass by you. He says, I'm going to parakomai. And, and that word is used for Jesus. It says he tried to pass by them. Um, a chance to display his glory to them. Um, and then when they, when they get freaked out and they're all worried and stuff, and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That phrase, it is I, ego, a me, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Using the name for God for himself. But Mark doesn't pause to point that out to us. He doesn't say, by the way, this is the word that's used of God passing by to display his glory to people. And he doesn't, like, throw in there, notice how he says, I am, to them as he's out on the water. He just kind of sets it there in the story like an Easter egg for you to try and see. And if you move by too quickly, you miss it. Or like when Jesus walks in in the triumphant entry, he doesn't walk in because he rides on a colt of a donkey. And as a kid, I always just grew up just thinking that was the first animal he found. If he'd have found a horse, that would have been a really awesome deal. But all he could find was a donkey and like a baby one at that. And so he rides in on a donkey. But actually, no, 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 no. If you know your prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 when it says this, um, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, which is what's happening. Jerusalem is shouting aloud as Jesus walks into it. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Matthew points this out in his gospel. He says, Jesus rode in on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey, to fulfill the scripture from Zechariah 9. Behold, O Jerusalem, shout aloud, your king comes on. Mark doesn't say anything about it. All he says is he rode in on a donkey, and he just leaves it there like an Easter egg for you to find. And if you go too fast through it, you miss it. Or, or when Jesus is in the boat, but he's sleeping and another storm comes up on the disciples and they start freaking out and they're panicking and so they cry out to Jesus, don't you care if we all drown here? Do something. And, and so as they're crying out to him, and it's a really cool story, and then you look back at Psalm 107, which is about these people who went out on, on the sea and a storm comes and the waves start to overcome them. And this is what it says. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Which is exactly what Jesus stands up and says, Be still, and it's quiet. And, and Mark doesn't point you to 107. And he doesn't even say anything about, and isn't this cool how he does the same kind of things that God does? All he does in Mark 4 in that story is he leaves the story open with this final question from the disciples. Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And he just leaves it hanging so that you'll ask the question along with the disciples. Mark does this over and over again. It seems like he does this. I, I think it's interesting that Mark's favorite, in Mark, Jesus' favorite term for himself is the Son of Man. This mysterious kind of figure from Daniel 7. Um, that Unless you're looking, unless you see what the Son of Man is, um, you, you kind of miss it. But he does this stuff. As one scholar says, Mark's method throughout his gospel is to leave his readers to make the crucial step of faith. Like, if you want to get Mark, it's on you to take a step out and see through kind of the through the surface of this to jump in deeper he wants his readers i think in the same way that jesus go or wants people to come up to him afterwards and ask about the parables i think mark wants people to read it and then go ask somebody and say what, what am i supposed to do with this what is this what's going on here um, because real discipleship in mark's gospel and actually throughout the scripture real discipleship real following of jesus does not start with this phrase yeah, I can buy that. Real discipleship starts with, I got to know more about that. Like that, that there seems to be something real to that, and I want it. I, I got to get to the bottom of this. Not just a, hey, he, he calmed the storms, and that's the thing that God does. Oh, yeah, I could see that. No, no, it's, it's I got to know more about this man. I got to want, want more about this. And so I believe that he carries... Um, that, that this is not just how you start in discipleship, but this is actually how you continue into it. We get more of Jesus in the searching for Him and in the growing hunger for Him. The joy of Easter eggs, by the way, 
Like there's something awesome for my kids. If I just hand them an Easter egg with candy, that's great. But the joy of Easter eggs is in the searching. Like the joy of, of Jesus and of knowing Him is yes. Getting like when someone goes and just puts it out in front of you and you get to see it in here, that's wonderful. It's like getting candy on Easter. But, but when you do the work yourself and dig in and start to search and say, I'm, I'm looking high and low, not for secret hidden meanings. I'm not talking about that, trying to find some mysterious meaning in the text. I'm just saying, trying to get at what Mark is saying, trying to get at what Paul is saying, trying to get at what Jesus is saying. When you search after Him and do the work of studying, that is part of the joy. But unlike Easter eggs, there's always a point on Easter Sunday when my kids run out of eggs to look for. And the party's halfway over. There's still a lot of candy to eat. For my son, it's like after the first egg, he's already sitting on the ground <laughs> cracking open the eggs, right? But, but there comes a point when you run out of Easter eggs and, and the search is over. That is not true of Jesus, and that is not true of God. You will never run out of more of Him to discover. Like there's always more of Him to know. There's always more of Him to seek out. And when we get to heaven one day and we stand before Jesus, there will still be a billion years worth of learning and searching for you to do to get to the depths of who He is. And there's something that's really, really cool about that and really, really beautiful about that. And so I think that maybe Mark leaves it like this um, because he wants somebody to read that gospel and then go, whoa, 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 what happened? He says he's going to go to Galilee. He says he's resurrected. Is that really true? And that the same person, like the person who reads that, they go to the person who handed it to him and say, you've got to explain this to me. You've got to tell me what happened. I think that's what Mark's doing, is he wants people, like if a person can just read verse 8 at the end of Mark and just be like, okay. Mark goes, yeah, you're probably, you're probably not up to this. This probably isn't for you. But the person who reads this and goes, I gotta, I gotta know. I gotta find out. That's the kind of person that he's after. And like I said, that's not just something you do at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. That's something that sustains you all the way through to say, I gotta have more of him. I gotta know more about him. I gotta experience him more. Um, there is one more possibility as to why Mark may have left it this way. And, and as I kind of explained, I want to have Kayla and Denver come up here so, so that we can kind of spend some time singing about the beauty of all this in just a second. But, but one other possibility, and I can't prove it. I can't really prove the first one that I just told you, but I think there's something, I think there's something to it. But another possibility for why Mark doesn't end with the resurrection is that the resurrection appearances would be a really fitting ending to this gospel it would tie a nice, neat bow onto this gospel. And I think Mark doesn't want a nice, neat bow at the end of it. I think Mark doesn't want to wrap it up because the resurrection is not an ending. The resurrection is the beginning. The resurrection is not, oh, the story is done. The resurrection is now the story really begins. Now a whole new reality, as Scott was quoted from N.T. Wright. Jesus is the prototype of something bigger that's starting to happen, and we're invited in on that. Um, I think that that may be what he's doing. And in leaving us with this question, you read verse 8 and you go, so what happens? Does the, do the women tell anybody? What do they do with this knowledge that they got? I think Mark wants you to ask that question, what did the women do with this? And then turn around and ask yourself that question. And what am I going to do with this? Okay, am I, going to, am I going to say nothing to no one in fear? Or am I going to move ahead with the greatest message that has ever been proclaimed, with the greatest story that has ever been told, and, and bring that to others? Am I willing to carry out the task that Jesus has given to me? Am I ready to testify to the truth that has been shown to me in this gospel? Am I ready to follow Jesus, even if that means suffering just like he did? In chapter 8, Jesus says this. This is what we call, remember, the linchpin of the gospel as he reveals his identity and then says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The resurrection is the proof that that statement is true. 
that the one who lost his life saves everybody's life in the process. And what I think he's saying is, yes, the, Jesus is the Messiah, first half of Mark. Yes, the Messiah must suffer, second half of Mark. But suffering leads to glory, leads to hope, leads to everything that God has intended in this world. And our prayer for you as you head out this summer is that you won't just believe that truth, but that you'll experience it, that you'll dive all into it and live it out, that you will make it your aim this summer. For those of you who won't be back again next fall, that you would make it your aim throughout the rest of your life to get as much of Jesus as you can possibly get your hands on. And that you would follow Him as far as He wants to lead you, no matter what that might cost you. Because there is a joy that comes from having Jesus. But there is like joy multiplied that comes from a hunger and a pursuit of Him that lets you have Him and still want more and keep going. And then get more of Him and still want more and keep going. And this is the heart that I want in my kids that I pray for at night. And this is the heart that I want in myself. And this is the heart that we want for you guys, that you will spend this summer and spend your life getting as much of Him as you can get your hands on because He's worth it. And so we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing about how He's worth it and how He's one that we stand in awe of and in amazement of and how we will seek after Him. And I hope that this is something that propels us into the summer this way. So let me pray. Dear Father, I am thankful for your word and and, uh, I'm thankful for Mark and I don't know that I got him all figured out in the way he writes and does these things, but I really do believe that there's something to this that that your word is designed um, to, to, to satisfy us and at the same time give us a, a greater hunger for more. And that's my prayer. That is one of the most beautiful gifts I think we could ever have, but, but that we can't necessarily just make happen in and of ourselves is that you would give us a greater hunger for your word and a greater hunger for your son and to follow him in all that we have. And so I ask that you would do that. For these students this summer, give them a taste for you and let them want to know you and also follow you in obedience and experience what it means to run after you as a disciple. Um, Put that in us and, and let us do that. Let us have more of you. I ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen.